0: Welcome back to the podcast. I have today author, activist, beauty explorer, and mother of five, Jodi Patterson, whom I've known for 20, I think 20 years, dude. She holds the position of the chair of the Human Rights Campaign Foundation Board, our nation's largest LGBT organization. Can you tell I'm excited? As a globally recognized activist, Jody speaks on topics of radical parenting, identity, and gender. We are going to get into this story in a second. Jody, welcome, welcome, welcome.
1: Hello. It's been years, like you said, a long time. Yeah.
0: Yoga has how it started, always. But I've yeah. wanted to have you on the podcast forever and now more than ever. I am just so thrilled and honored to have you here. And I'm going to jump right in as I do. Your son announced at the age of three that he wasn't a girl, he's a boy. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, you set out to inform yourself, shift your bias, change the way your entire community understands gender. And you chronicled that journey in your memoir, which I read voraciously in two days. It's called The Bold World, A Memoir of Family and Transformation. The, only, the one and only Alice Walker hailed this book as marvelous. <laughs> and literally the entire time I was reading your book, Jody, I forgot about the pandemic. I forgot about myself. I forgot about my life. And the way in which you told your story is so inviting and so true and real and beautiful. And it makes the entire conversation turn from, oh, that mm-hmm. is scary, different shit to wow this is beautiful. This is, this is exactly what I needed to understand. Your second book, Born Ready, which has as its subtitle, The True Story of a Boy Named Penelope, allows your children's voices to be heard. And this book is how your kids show us how an entire community can change for those they love. I'm just dying over this whole conversation. I'm so happy to have you here. I, I want to continue just talking about your history so that my listener can know who you are before all of this. You're a long-standing entrepreneur. You co-founded two beauty companies. You received beauty skin expert of the year from Cosmo. You co-owned Joe's Pub, <laughs> the public theater, which i forgot. <laughs> forgotten. remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that place. And along with the work you do with the human rights campaign you're also on mount sinai's institute for health equity research task force um i was just talking to latham recently too mm-hmm. about racial uh medical racism
1: yeah
0: holy god the you're also on the advisory board of the ackerman institute's gender and family project you're on mount sinai's center for transgender medicine and surgery advisory board thank you and the un has recognized you as the champion of change. I am dying over all of these developments that have happened since I've seen you last in person. There are so many facets. You've you've um, been born so many times is what I feel.
1: That is true, that is true. When you talk about There's that, when you quote, say born so many times, I'm sorry, I don't want to in- yes. jump in, but that just no, that no, no. stood Go out ahead. to me.
0: Go ahead.
1: When, when you talk yeah. about being born so many times, um, I actually counted this out years ago and i looked at 20 yeah i looked at the 25 years the last 25 years and i just wanted to see what i had done because i was feeling so tired right but more so Mm, than just mm. the regular tired and so i counted nine careers nine career changes um 18 homes movement into new homes two husbands also the two 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 ex-husbands five children And I wondered, why was I changing so much? Am I just an unsettled person? And I really thought about that. And I do think it's, I I rebirth a lot quite often. Yes. To me, it's a great thing. It feels good. It's difficult. But in the aftermath of being reborn, I have this new uh, vision. So you Mm. notice something that I also noticed, rebirth.
0: Yes. I, I took copious notes on your book and I wanted to do a really good job in ensuring that my listener gets to know you pretty well and gets inspired to make some moves uh, based on your story. And I want to start with this quote. I've always been told that women are powerful, tenacious, and important, that we pull from limitless places. I don't know why this makes me cry, that we make magic wherever we go, shining light into the darkness, forming impenetrable shields with our love, and that beneath moments of weakness are endless reserves of strength that I think sums up like I think about this all the time I think about death we both turned 50 this year I think about death all the time and I like that would be perfect to read at my funeral (laughs) but honestly that that's how I want to begin this that's the sort of overarching foundational roots and leaves of this interview you were a city kid, you spent summers in the South, and you felt the South held, in your words, some secret medicine, like there was some sort of spirit in the soil. These were your words. Can you please talk about that? Because I want my listener to understand what that means, my white listener, to feel the spirit of the soil in the South, and why that is so important for us in our ignorance to understand
1: you touched on so many of the guiding principles right women southern life southern culture and that power that comes and a lot of times we summarize it as magic or something that we can't quite put our finger on for me a lot of times it was i couldn't describe it exactly but i knew that there was some energy in the south i knew that there was some energy from the women that that raised me and people have called it, especially now, there's a hashtag black girl magic. And that means for, for most, for many people, like the, the women that you see that are so outstanding who are black and who are female, who mm-hmm. have beaten the odds and risen above mm-hmm. all the bullshit and all the racism and mm-hmm. sexism and classism. And you see them succeeding, outpacing some of their white counterparts, right? But defying oh, yeah. the odds. And so we call it black, we call it black girl magic. But for me, when I really look at this, it's not magic. It isn't, it's not magic. And it is to belittle it, to call it magic. This was a strategy that many of our mothers, grandmothers, great grandmothers put into p- practice centuries ago. And it is birthed in the South. It's birthed in the culture that came out of, that thrived through slavery, through the Jim Crow cell. And I really had to look at that because I needed something more than what I had at the top of my fingertips. I needed something Mm -hmm. more that was deep inside of me. So I went back and I sat, which I always do when I go back home to my mom's house in Atlanta. I sat down on the floor and I looked at the pictures of the women who raised Mm -hmm. me. And I really tried to remember their lives, ponder. We don't spend enough time pondering on the women who came before us. Mm -hmm. And so I pondered on their lives and I, I found that if they can, surpass, then I can. If they can change yeah. laws, then I can. And so I—that that is something that, that pace in which you can sit and ponder oftentimes is found in the South. That pace of life gives you a moment yes. to think. And then also what is the, around it's you. It's like this,
0: I can smell the sun. I can smell yeah. the sun and I can feel like the little dust motes in the air when you're sitting in that living room, in that sitting room. And that is exactly house. what it is.
1: Yeah, there's this um, connection to, and it sounds very, you know, ethereal, but there's a connection to the earth and the nature, which we are devoid of in the the city in that same way. But also it is the proximity to people and to the history. We have to remember this history that is so forgotten or so repressed of Black women, sometimes often single Black women, but definitely leadership from Black women um, that can be found Mm -hmm. first birthed in our homes.
0: Your grandmother was friends with James Baldwin, is that what I came to understand?
1: Yes, <laughs> which, you know, now, oh my God. I know. Now, and she, was, she would tell me stories of the two of them and I would l- linger on her words then, but even now more so, because Baldwin has become uh, so a part of my, like literally my day-to-day writing and my thinking. He transcends yes. time. His words are just about yes. the entire human experience coming from yes. opposition, rue opposition and striving. Yeah. Striving.
0: Yep. Yeah. There's a particular quote about the white moderate that really has me um, mm-hmm. dealing right now in a very serious mm-hmm. way. You saw in your grandmother's face all the courage that you saw at the time when you were 43 and you were exhausted and you left and you left the city and you went down south for a little while and you learned. At that time, you know, when you shared in the book about how your great grandmother, Lurleen, actually went to college, actually got her degree, credits toward her master's. And this was in the early 1900s. This was unheard of, Yeah, unheard of. You really are <laughs> from a long line of
1: activists. I don't think that everyone understands how radical that was for black women to graduate from college and not because we were for a less- woman. A woman. It, exactly. For even a woman, period. Yeah. But, but especially a Black woman. And, you know, clearly it was um, illegal for so long for us to read and write and learn. And then the, on top of the racism, there was the sexism mm-hmm. and then the poverty that um, was forced upon the Black community. And then there was just a need for people to be hands-on working at home. And I look at this idea of, like, how women have been forced to be the labor of not only their families, but of the society. Like we wouldn't have the structures of our families or the structure of the society without the the labor of women. And so when I look at the women in my family who labored through their families and labored through school and built an education and built a family, I just think, you know, I just want to stop and, and notice that for, for every, I want everyone to notice that. So yeah, Lurleen was, um, an educated woman.
0: Yeah that was where it all sort of came together for me and I really realized who you are. Mm. Um, Shortly after this you started in in the book about Penelope. Penelope had just told you that he was a boy not a girl as he was born and then you first started coming to terms at that time with this using your, as you said in the book, your womanhood, your excellence, your blackness, your freedom. I just want to hold on those four words. You used your womanhood, your excellence, excellence, your blackness, and your freedom to come to terms with the fact that this human who was born a girl is actually a boy. And it was your mother who had taught you about leaning in these words toward goodness. I can't even. There are so many quotes in here (laughs) that I'm... I can't wait right to now. see
1: your highlights in the book, because you're reminding me, of course, I've, I've written it, I've lived it, I, I continue to live it. Mm. And then when you highlight certain sentences and words, even those four words, it just brings it back so much stronger for me, because some of those words, although those words can take on different meaning for different people. Blackness, I mean, look at that, yes. that could be a negative. Many people don't even want to say the word black. And finally, I love it. Oh, with a capital B. I just, (laughs) you know, with
0: a capital B. I just. It bears noting that since I was a very little girl, I had this beautiful friend called Tanya, and all I wanted to do was be black.
1: (laughs) And we wanted. I wanted her
0: eyelashes, her skin, everything, her hair. I wanted everything about her.
1: And I wanted to be a chubby girl.
0: (sighs) Wait, total disclosure. I used to stand next to cars in the summertime with my bare legs and my shorts so that I could see what my legs would look like if they were bigger yeah
1: not kidding and I used to stand in front of the mirror exactly and imagine myself and take on the the language <sighs> that I thought a chubby girl would have in yes. this posture yes um and a lot yes. of times we want to be more than what do we see in ourselves and we have mm. to really find that more we have to find mm. more
0: the word excellence is the one that really brings tears to my eyes there's something about that word and i think it came up for a moment in some way with jeff burrows when i interviewed him for this podcast Mm -hmm. our dear friend um love jeff so much silly but (laughs) excellence like really to think about how it doesn't matter what color you are my listener think about how you can practice excellence think about how you can instill in your child excellence What does that mean to you? And how did your mother teach that to you?
1: She taught it in the way that she taught blackness as well. And so Mm. there was never a mantra, you are black or you are excellent or you are better than or you are, but it was in the art that was hanging in our house. It was in the conversation at the dinner table. It was in the way she touched us, the songs that she sang to us even the fairy tales so we grew up on the classic fairy tales rapunzel um etc but she remixed those fairy tales to establish us as the central character so rapunzel had cornrows <laughs> all of the kings had afros the princesses were dark skinned wow. and she just, <sighs> she she in, imagined a world and reimagined a world where we were where they were black people and there were folks who survived and thrived and triumphed folks who were free perhaps they didn't start free but they emerged into freedom so she was really creating a world excellence for me is when i think of black excellence i think of dinner time which is a strange relationship for most people but for us much of the growing of our family happened at the dinner table so i thought when we were talking about Roberta Flack, who's a famous singer. I thought we were talking about my aunt. I thought I thought she was my aunt for many years because of the way that we oh spoke about our um, icons. We spoke about them in a very familiar family way. So excellence is almost like it was breathed into us, not as better than, but as solid, as unified, and as triumphant. I think that's the difference.
0: Beautiful, yep. Yeah. Other other influences of color that were mentioned too. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go
1: ahead. I was just thinking. You know, also it's um, my family demonstrated a lot of what they were trying to convey. We didn't have a lot of lectures, but we had a lot of demonstrations. So when I think of you know how do I interpret excellence? And I see my grandmother Gloria, mm. who uh, was raised in the South. Um, she came up through the Jim Crow South and as a teacher she was suing hospitals and school boards in the segregated south and she won those court cases she was um, accused of being a communist accused of being a bad person accused of being crazy and fired from her jobs she was jailed dozens of times she continued on became a tenured professor worked at emory worked at clark atlanta university she's a woman who sought out love year after year she married five times (laughs) One man, she married twice. Wow. So when I, yeah, when I think of Dude. excellence, I think of this like just determination, also perseverance. And she never told me. She never told me a lecture with pie charts and Venn diagrams about how to be excellent. But she showed me, and she demonstrated to us that we move through yeah. life, through it. We keep moving through it.
0: Yeah. Yep. Such good such good medicine right now. The other influences of color, Faith Ringgold, whose work I finally got to see in Europe, a giant show last year, Nina Simone, James Baldwin, of course, I made a note about how your parents gave you the notion to quote, think in numbers rather than separately. And this really struck me, I wrote it down. You're part of a greater whole, which was inculcated in you, even as you grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood in a predominantly white private school, every weekend they would drive you to Harlem and drop into the all black neighborhood. And this taught you that they're in this paraphrasing that there are so many different kinds of black people
1: mm-hmm. and
0: how to flow with anyone, how to talk
1: to anyone. So the, the weekends in Harlem were, um, and it's funny when it's, it sounds like when I, when I say weekends in Harlem, it almost sounds separate from de- everyday life. And it didn't feel that way. So sometimes it was on the weekend. Sometimes yeah. it was all summer. We really were moving from yeah. the Upper West Side on 81st Street to Harlem, um, to the South Bronx. My father really wanted us to flow in all mm. neighborhoods. And he would say, mm. baby girl, walk into any joint like you own the joint, (laughs) walk into any room like you own the joint, because he wanted us, especially as black girls, to never fear white people, poor black people, rich black people, and Mm -hmm. to have um, relevance in all communities. And so we would um, drive uptown to a place called the Armory. Well, it's technically called the Armory. <laughs> it's an armory and it has uh, tennis courts. And then outside they had outdoor tennis court- courts that we called the jungle. And they were next to the projects and they were in um, a low income neighborhood, but it wasn't, that wasn't the point for us. The point was that we were outside and we heard African bombada, we heard the nation of Islam, we had our friends, we played uh, hopscotch. we played heaven. tennis, ate lunch outside, and we had a taste of blackness Un, uncontained. So in mm. my mm. home on the Upper West Side on 81st Street, blackness was in our home, in our apartment, on our walls, in our literature, in our language. But when we stepped outside, right, to, to Central Park West, there was no relevant black culture there or obvious black culture. Yeah. But in Harlem, we had obvious black culture. And that was right. it. That was change. That made the difference for us. I now seek yeah. out black culture. You can't keep it away yes. from me. I am. I'm going to find yes. it no matter where I live, no matter what socioeconomic group I'm in or what boardroom I sit in, I'm going to no. bring black culture and seek out black culture.
0: No, I, and I get it. And I actually, I mean, as I shared, I mean, mm-hmm. black culture for me was everything as a kid. And I also sought it out and to my parents chagrin slash ultimate approval in the end <laughs> because they realized that there's just people, <laughs> yeah.
1: good people. And what would we be with? What would with, What would this uh, country be without Black culture? We're looking at art, we're exactly. looking at music, we're looking at language.
0: Everything. And, Everything.
1: and I think even now, Elena, it's like even now when we think about a path forward, we would be yes. foolish not to look at Black women and the culture that Black women have articulated in the home And we would be foolish not to bring that into the boardroom, into politics, into our communities.
0: It's about connectivity and love and care and excellence Mm -hmm. and womanhood. Yeah, exactly. Your dad, please. Your dad was the co-founder, this bears noticing. Uh, He was the co-founder of the first black owned brokerage firm on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. He would tell you, as you said, that there was no place you don't belong. Do your hair how you like, walk in like you own the joint. But I want to talk about how he helped you manage when there were a few incidents in the book mentioned when you would walk into some building on Park Avenue or wherever in Manhattan and a white doorman would mistake you and your family for the fucking help. And he- It
1: happened in our own own apartment building. No. (laughs) Wherever we went, they did not believe that we belonged there. (sighs) We could have been going there every damn day, right?
0: he said to you something that made me weep. I had to put the book down and literally like put my head into a pillow for a good 10, 15 minutes. He said, don't let, don't let those white folks confuse you, Jody stay focused.
1: Yeah. That was powerful. It makes me think about it too. You know, it can be, I think there's so many times when as a girl, you, as a young black girl, you feel, um, literally turned upside down confused about who you are your body i would study my lips for hours things that we should not have a moment of time not spent about on their they're lips yes. right but you would you would consume your time with your lips and your hips and your skin and your hair how my makeup looked different from like my, my white friend's makeup just things that really consume our time in the most irrelevant ways yeah. um and and because of that when you when you have a self-doubt you enter rooms and there's information in that room but you are consumed with something distracting your, your, your physical appearance your blackness right and so my dad would would um, notice that that we would be uncomfortable in certain spaces we would start making jokes about older white people and their toupees or their makeup we would just try to deflect the insecurities that we felt by making fun of the white folks in the room. And he would remind us very bluntly, you're getting confused here because of your insecurities. Walk in, see what's in the room, gather the information. There's information to be found in all rooms. Don't be insecure and primarily don't let them confuse you because they will, meaning they, the dominant culture, will confuse the suppressed culture all the time. And I see that with not just black people, but I see it with straight culture dominating over trans or sit or, or, or LGBT or queer culture. For sure. And so I tell the same thing to my son who's trans, you walk in the room, walk in like you own the joint. Don't let cisgender people, straight people, uh, confuse you. You are who you are. You own the joint. Yeah.
0: Wow. Throughout your childhood, I also noted that you were the one who sort of held the order in, Mm -hmm. in the home, in the family. Your sister ended up changing the dynamic drastically at a certain point. Your parents grew apart. <laughs> you found downtown. You found Nels. I nearly died.
1: Yep.
0: So many memories <laughs> that whole in that, place. that whole
1: world, right? Jessica, I have, and
0: Lana. I, yes. I mean, I'm sitting in that in that space when I say the word, having a mojito. <laughs> Those mojitos. Oh. The the time you spent at Spellman, though, really sort of took everything that you're that you were learning as a child and brought everything to the to the forefront you i'll never forget this line shifting to white cashmere and your grandma's beige hatchback (laughs) hoopty. like
1: (laughs) okay there's like this so there's the there's this really this warmth to the south and this um history to the south but then there's also a side of the south that is more challenging which when I entered Spelman College which is in Atlanta an historically black college it was the pinnacle of southern um lady miss Ladyness, <laughs> lady-ness mm-hmm. right we had white dresses and we had white gloves we had a curfew everyone pretty much had their hair done and their nails done and I'm coming from manhattan downtown club scene where we wear doc martins and ripped t-shirts and maybe some fake pearls like madonna and we are intentionally um a hodgepodge of of looks whereas in the south when i stepped on that campus they thought i was so strange (laughs) and i had to figure out with my boots and my, my my ripped up you know look but that was the first and i and i and i sort of got quiet when I first stepped into Spellman. I got really yeah. scared. I thought maybe they're not going to, maybe I'm not excellent like they are. Yeah. Maybe I'm not a part of this black excellence. And I had to move myself through that, like that transitional period of judging the black women at Spelman based on their nails and their hair and their outfits.
0: The perfect.
1: The perfection. And I had yeah. to move through that and like find, some value in that which i found a lot of value and some value in the new york city culture and i've I've become obviously a mix of both southern and northern sure forever
0: dr cole ended up taking over spelman Mm -hmm. and she turned it all around she she prioritized activism over the white gloves she gave you and the whole student body, I reckon, um, education, marriage, and activism, those three priorities, I guess. Yeah. The one image of of you sitting in the hall, or you standing in the hall, and, and she was in her kente cloth, and she would touch mm-hmm. her face. Mm-hmm. And you wrote, I mean, sometimes the king is a woman. Yeah. What share her
1: do you f- know? I want to share
0: her full name, Dr. Paul. What's her full name? So we can Janetta. see. Janetta. Janetta.
1: I- Dr. Jeanetta B. Cole. Mm -hmm. Got it, thank you. And you know, this is leadership, right? Like a different face of leadership. I had never Mm -hmm. been um, with a leader who had an Afro, who had brown skin, who was a woman, and who touched me. Like who Mm -hmm. was so close to me. She was so comfortable Mm -hmm. with me. She recognized me so naturally that she could put her hand on my face, Mm -hmm. which blew my mind, it sounds so you know like a story but imagine the president of the united states coming up to you and feeling excuse so me not this one not this one <laughs> not this not one this like one. Barack the Obama one before
0: maybe. the one before but, but
1: yeah. right and, and dr cole was our president not of a university but our, she was our cultural president yes She's not just of the university and so with that type of high leadership for her to have no barriers between her and, and myself was like mind-blowing. I'd never, never been led by someone like that um, other than the women in my family and that shaped me. I will, I will um, yeah. and this is the interesting thing, you know, I didn't even want to go to Spelman. I wanted to go to the schools that my friends were going to, Smith, yes. Holyoke,
0: yes,
1: yeah. Vassar, Wesleyan, and my dad said, nope. Well, he said, you can do anything you want, you can go anywhere you want, but I will pay only for a Black college. <laughs>
0: Ooh,
1: ooh. <laughs> and I thought, oh shit, I guess I gotta go there. Turned out to yep. be the best um, decision of my life.
0: No, well, I mean, Maya Angelou commencement
1: speech, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, and she, you know, it, it was a series of, of women. This is why it's so important. If we invite women into into our spaces, if powerful people invite women into our spaces, I mean, universities, boardrooms, startup companies, hospitals, we will get the, the information that Alice Walker has and Dr. Maya Angelou had and Toni Morrison had, and there there are other women out there. They have not all passed away. So we have hmm. to invite them in and hear what they have to say. Dr. Maya Angelou said to us something I'll never forget at the commencement speech. She said, you are already paid for.
0: You do not have to pay for yourselves
1: don't have to pay for yourselves, it's done. And I didn't know what that meant. I sat with that. And she was saying what my dad was teaching me about Pan-Africanism, about thinking in numbers. We've done this, the aunties and the great grandmothers Mm. have done this for you. So Mm. you are here, own it and don't waste it and then do it for Mm. the next, right? Like it was just, it was powerful.
0: She said, she went on to say that when you walk into an office, you do not (laughs) walk alone and you bring everyone that has loved you with you.
1: Yeah, bring your aunties. Bring your aunties. <laughs> bring your aunties. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's a funny thing because I, I, I have found myself over the past five years entering office spaces and boardrooms more than ever stages with 5,000 people in the audience. And I have to bring my aunties with me. Literally, I that's look right. at them before I get on stage, bring them that's in right. and drape them around me mimic their personalities sometimes um and that's like that idea of um when people say god she just has something about her oh no no it's it's the aunties that you're seeing
0: (laughs) it's it's everybody who's walking with me in closing she said um quote however i am perceived or deceived lay aside your fears that i will be undone for i shall not be moved
1: yeah that, that sturdiness, I shall not be moved. Sturdy is another word that I like to use. And it comes from that. There are um, all of these things that I think, pull us, particularly as women, mm. Right, morals, pull us husbands, spouses, pull us toxic mm. male energy, white supremacy, the children pull us, right? mm. our home life pulls us, we get pulled in so many directions and we have to plant ourselves and be sturdy so that when we do get pulled by these sometimes very amazing people and things like family we do not get broken right and it's this idea that i've been recently thinking about even after i finished writing this book the next book i'm I'm working on now is about part of it is about untethering as a woman Mm. and untethering for me is um detaching from the things that define us so detaching from some of some things that are that are great things like detaching from children spouses uh, morals even for me parents parents and not forever i don't mean go off into the world as a lone ranger or be an astronaut and go live on the moon i mean women as leaders have to detach for a moment to understand freedom yeah and, yeah, yeah, and that's
0: that, you know. You actually, at this point in the book, <clears throat> you actually detach for a time from your dad. Mm-hmm. And because um, he was mm-hmm. super patriarchal in a really damaging way for you. Yes. And you said once you give a person the right to judge one tiny part of you, you invite that person to define all of you. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, he was um he was complicated, and I wanted to not sugarcoat his, his personality. He was one of the leading, defining people in my life. He was also one of the most harmful and (laughs) and taxing people in my life. Yeah, he showed me how to be strong, but he also insisted I not be stronger than he. He showed me how to be smart, but he thought I should not be too smart as a woman. He's very contradictory. I mean, he had these great and grand ideas for our family but he could would cap them his sexism was so apparent that it would never it would always surface the sexism would always surface right. and there was a moment in my life when I asked him if I told him I wanted to go to grad school and I wanted to study literature and he told me that only fat gay ugly women go to grad school wow and that I should focus on getting married well because I was so beautiful and my brown skin was so beautiful that I could marry well. Wow. <laughs> it's like so, wow. so, so crazy the talk. But when I, when he said it, I realized that he was a man who was burdened by his generation's ideas on sexism and, and, mm-hmm. and colorism. And, and I knew I had to pull away from that, detach from that because I had to have freedom from those. I don't want, I didn't want his old ideas planting themselves on my somewhat new mind.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. We do that all the time. We put old ideas on new people. So I had to pull away. And then I came. I did come back. Lynn. like, that's the thing. We pull away so we can come back different.
0: Well, insert New York city, insert surge area. MK fez <laughs> time cafe, East village road trip with your grandmother, launching D'Angelo. Hello. Yeah. Which was like oh. in my, in my life. For years, that was my soundtrack, Mm -hmm. that first album. You were pregnant with your daughter, you opened Joe's pub, you opened your PR firm. I met you shortly, I think right then. And then you went back to Germany to help him die, your father. Mm -hmm. The most beautiful Mm -hmm. scene was that scene where you're whispering in his ears uh, as he got close to death and telling him stories and hearing him, the gentlest little responses from him knowing that you were doing the right thing?
1: A lot of the, um, what you just talked about, that art of you know downtown New York and hmm. my marriage, my first marriage yeah. to Serge and yeah. Joe's Pub, D'Angelo, these were all great collaborations. Amazing. They were like, I have lived um, with a philosophy of collaboration. And sometimes those collaborations, almost always, they, they have a, a beginning and a middle and an end. Um, yeah. You can call it divorce, you can call it career shift, but those were some great collaborations. And even with my dad, it was a collaboration in the end when he died in Germany and I was there. It all came back, the the entire story of my father and, and me came back consciously to me in Germany and I could see the whole collaboration. Mm. And this is something really interesting, Ch- parents and children don't think of it as a collaboration. Mm. Um, parents don't think of the relationship that they're building as a collaboration and i don't mean that in that we give them the ability to 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 have 50 percent of all the rule making but i do think that we have to see these contracts that we make with our children as collaborative contracts don't work if they if one person is completely unfulfilled Mm. and so we have to rethink these contracts with our with our With the people we collaborate with, including our spouses, including our children, we have to rethink them over and over again um, so that the collaboration, when it comes to an end, can feel justified, can feel worth it in the end.
0: That whole collaboration that you and Serge created, the beginning, the middle, the end, I have this one image of you and Georgia picnicking on your bed on chicken after you and Serge broke up. And you're laughing outside and you're panicking inside. And I remember so clearly it was right. I had to be right around the same time that I was getting divorced. Jonah was like three and a half. And I remember having to hold the whole world together. It felt like, yeah. and it was almost like I was back in that body again. And so I want to thank you specifically for that whole description, because it helped me heal that within myself, just reading your story of that moment
1: it's like you make these moments i mean these 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 moments happen right like i call them sinkholes when the earth opens up it splits you drop Mm. and the sinkhole or the fissure of life is something that we as women never acknowledge as a part of life we in fact don't even want to believe we're not raised to believe that fissures happen and they do they're these absolute essential elements to life whether you call it divorce or death or covid right sinkholes or fissures happen and then we have to figure out how to move through them um, and find the upside in the split and then come out of the split uh, come out of the split in that moment when i was eating chicken rotisserie chicken on my bed with my daughter (laughs) because Mm. i just could not get out of bed we were trying to find the upside we were trying to come out of the split and we, we do, but we have we to really do. think about it, how to find the upside in the split. Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: The upside after that, Vibe Magazine, Zach Posen, you rock that. <laughs> yeah. Second pregnancy with Joe. Cassius, Georgia Beauty. Oh my God, I loved walking into that store. That was Oh fun. my God, on Houston. That was when, right around then you met nine. Mm-hmm.
1: Penelope Jeez. came along, <laughs> I oh, mean, God. wow! That whole period was like, boom, 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 It was like fire, firecrackers just popping off in our lives. Um, wow. You know, I had these, I had my daughter from my first marriage. Then I met Joe, like you said, and I, we had three mm-hmm. children back to back. And then we found new love in a person who I did not birth, but who became my son. His full name is Air Nine, and we call him Nine, or Pooh.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> it's spelled a, N-A-I-N, just yeah. in case my listener is a visual person.
1: Yeah, N-A-I-N. But really, he was uh, a moment, I, I, he just walked into my store, I had a store on Houston, we were open late at night, and he sort of skateboarded in with this beautiful sort of Jean-Michel Basquiat energy. Mm. And over the course of a month, we became inseparable. And that sounds so strange as a mom to like, let someone in your space, right? Personal space with your vulnerable kids. But it was undeniable. We just could not not be together. And a lot of people were angry at me, especially my husband at the time. He thought this is so dangerous, letting someone in our life that we don't know. We don't know Mm. his background. We don't know his language. We don't know anything about him. And um, I heard what he was, what he was getting at, but I said, just spend some time with this kid. And so we all just spent sort of, you know, personal time with him. Joe spent time with nine at the basketball court. I spent time at my store, and he became a part of our lives, and and, and eventually moved in with us and worked for Serge Becker at at Miss Lily's, and you wow. know, went to college. It just, you know, he's a he's a special person.
0: And at that point, Penelope mm-hmm. declared. Othello came and then Penelope declared. (laughs) I know we can't forget about Othello. Mm -hmm. Penelope declared, Mama, I don't feel like a boy. I am a boy.
1: Yeah.
0: And you found that teaching your kids about transgender was sort of like the way your parents infused your life with pride and capital B blackness. Mm -hmm. Um, There were so many little moments, and I don't want to sort of ruin it for my listener because you really do have to read the book, but... There were so many moments where you're teaching Joe's um, dad, who's from Ghana, how to change the pronouns, yeah. <laughs> the accent that you. I mean, you managed to get it in there. <laughs> I could hear the whole thing, and then explaining to your own mom about gifts. The quote was: "Colors and symbols may mean more to you than you might understand. May mean more than you might understand. Meaning, like you." you you have a girl called Penelope, you buy pink hangers, you show her the dresses and she chooses the Spider Man toothbrush. And this is how it goes down. You ended up finding a trans girl who became the de facto advisor to your family,
1: Jazz. Jazz Jennings, yeah. And I want to backtrack a bit, like Please. You know, the and I'm so glad you gave the full description of my life up until the point Penelope says I am not a girl.
0: Yes. Is that
1: Fullness to my life, from the women in the South who were activists that raised me, from my downtown eclectic life in New York City, to my uh, meeting of my adopted son, these are very different worlds. And so I was used to, I clung to, I gravitated towards different worlds. And then, and I I clung to diversity, I clung to inclusion, Harlem, Upper West Side, right? And then I, I meet Penelope, my third child. And that, that type of change, that type of difference rocked me for a moment. I wasn't used to, I was used to different cultures, but then that difference scared me. And I had to go back into the thought. I had to go back into the memory of my family, right? right? About self-determination and about pride and about owning everything. And I had to give that same blessing to, to Penelope. Because when, when right. your kid says, I am not who you think I am, I'm something entirely different. Wow. It, it makes you question who you are. Right. So if Penelope is not a girl, then who the hell am I? And that's just so big, so big dumb back.
0: Thank God Penelope got to see and watch that interview. This Jazz Jennings was interviewed by Barbara Walters regarding how she he, born a boy yeah she simply thinks like a woman but like a girl cuz jazz was a kid at the time by the end of that marathon night watching penelope knew that he was trans and he felt mm-hmm.
1: seen like the
0: sky opened or something
1: first time he said it yeah. he said mama i'm trans like jazz
0: so good thank god
1: there was no other um image for him to just, to to mirror, not mirror, but to, um, there was no wording for him to pull from. There was no no blueprint. And he was trying to give us the language by like stomping on the dresses mm, <laughs> and mm. refusing the pink. That
0: mm-hmm. was
1: the only way he could explain it to us. And then as he had more information, as his mm-hmm. language developed, he could say, I am trans, like jazz. But it was, you know, it's like, this is why representation matters. Without representation, we are at a loss for some wording yeah. and articulation, and we are, we get frustrated. Penelope was so frustrated before he could yeah. say that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, this is important, and for some reason, I have to just give a shout out to Lisa Cooper for introducing us because <laughs> she's the one who brought me over to your house. Yeah. But right at this point, and I'm thinking of her right now for some reason because she's such an active voice for trans people in certain societies and cultures my listener perk up your ears. If you're doing something else, trans people are revered as two-spirited, revered, holy, two-spirited humans. I just need to really just put a big banner (laughs) right there.
1: Yeah. This, um, this anger towards trans people, and this distrust of trans people is a cultural thing. It's not all over the world. It is not necessarily, even um, what, well, it's definitely not what is done all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me understand that how we treat people is is cultural and we can change. If we don't like what we're doing, we can course correct. And so we have to look at other cultures and say, okay, if um, in Native American culture, and it's not, it's all over the world, There, there are pockets all over the world that see trans people as special, as connected to a higher spirit, as natural and healthy elements to this whole human existence and so we have to find that we have to Mm -hmm. find those cultures because otherwise we just start dividing and killing and i want to just mention in 2019 there were 309 murders of trans people yeah not by other trans people by cisgender people
0: yes who were afraid scared put off whatever the case
1: 309 globally
0: murders yeah You know, what's interesting you, a little bit later in the book, you talked about the Patterson school, Mm -hmm. your parents created this black environment that was reflective of the capital B black capital S self, the only place that you had had for spiritual expression before that was church. And they wanted more for you and for the community and, and the sort of nourishing capital B black environment that was missing from mainstream schools and putting that at the center, Black culture at the center of learning. You had Stan Latham teaching storytelling. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. You had Charlene hunter Galt teaching on current events. Do you know that I dated her son, Chuma?
1: Chuma, I know. <laughs> that is, to me, that was just such a great uh, moment when I realized you and Chuma knew each other and yeah. you dated. I loved that. We so still, great.
0: we still, we're still totally in touch. He actually went to school with, Jonah's, who ended up to be Jonah's father, Anthony, that he went to Emory with uh-huh. Anthony. Oh, um, all I know is that I died when I met Charlene. Yeah. There was this one moment where I had to get on a plane with um, Ed Bradley to fly, yeah. to see them for the summer. And when <laughs> I, I was so nervous, first of all, the whole plane. But when I when I met Charlene for the first time, I could not speak and all I did was listen for days. And, and as
1: we should as we should wow. as we should there are many what moments moment. where we would to listen to these women exactly wow is all we need to do
0: after a couple of years i'm, I'm sort of jumping around a little bit but i want to talk about the trans camp in new hampshire where mm-hmm. i might have to read penelope's story penelope's poem too but the trans camp in new hampshire where joe's this joe is the father of penelope my listener yeah who is now a boy, obviously, and Joe's high school sweetheart and her family happen to be at trans camp where the whole family can go and and finally just sink into the reality of having a trans child. There is Joe's high school sweetheart and her family sitting at the next table. This was a real turning point for you and your family. And I just want to talk about that because if anyone's listening or knows somebody who has a trans kid and might need to know about trans camp, here's your chance.
1: First of all, it's like it's the camp that is um, something we do every year, sometimes twice a year. And so the family will go and then Penelope will go just as a camper by himself. But it's a camp, like you said, for families who are raising trans kids Um, and the entire family can come and. The kids do camp activities and the parents sit down in groups and talk about issues that are looming mm-hmm. over us. But the complicated part, as with all of life, is this little thing called racism. <laughs> because as Black people, we are so tired of being in environments where we, th- we are the only Black people. Because race will overshadow everything and we can't even you know get to the matter at hand. So when right. I was telling my husband Joe at the time that I wanted to take the family to trans sleepaway camp, he said, Oh gosh, here we go again. We're just going to be around a bunch of white hippies. <laughs> We're just right. going to be the only, the only black people in the, um, Don't make me go. Yeah. Don't make me go. I don't want to be around the Birkenstock <laughs> folks. Oh. And I understood what he was talking about, but we, when we got there, we ended up going because I said it was important. I reminded him he has Birkenstocks. His mother's white, like, come on, let's cross these boundaries, right? Um, and then when we Funny. got to camp. Ironically, there was one other Black family, and it was his girlfriend from high school. Sick. Sick, and, and she's also, Sick. you know, there's, there's some African heritage there. And, they, and that made him think, okay, if she is here and I am here, maybe this is not so insurmountable. You know there's and again representation we have to see ourselves in moments mm-hmm. um, so that we can understand that we are not one s- strange person that we there are numbers right. of us it's a right. body of people going through this
0: your kid's a prophet straight up mm. um <laughs> bishop who runs the school where he now goes in brooklyn so impressive by the way wow
1: my academy. Academy is the name, and it's beautifully run. Yeah, beautifully run
0: school. She not only assented to the fact that Penelope was a boy, she called him a prophet. And at this point, I, t- I took the time to write the whole piece that Penelope wrote at age six. Mm. And I think it's a good way to close, but I definitely, after this, after I read this, I want to talk about what you're doing now and what's to come and where we can find you. I might be a ninja, but I got a heart. I might be tough, but I got a heart. I'm like that from the start. My legs are hard as steel, but I'm not despicable. Penelope wrote that at age six. Age six. I My God.
1: Oh. I, you know, it, it, um, his words stopped me in my tracks. They always have,
0: yeah.
1: he, what he was expressing in that, from what I can see
0: mm.
1: is that he is not hard. He is not angry. He is not disruptive in a bad way. Mm. Mm. All the things that, that many of us were feeling about him, you know, we were seeing a kid crying and stomping and refusing and demanding and we thought that was anger and 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 disruption in a negative way but he's saying what he's telling us in that poem is he is beautiful and loving he is tough and triumphant Hmm. but his heart is full and he you know this is what we have to look for when people come to you in peace and they tell you who they are we have to listen for me not to have heard him fully would have been catastrophic.
0: Mm. Yeah. That was the fourth or fifth cry of the book, I think. (laughs) Um, I ended my notes on the conversation you had with Lerma about how self-identity begins at two years old. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really good place to sort of, just in case my listener thinks, well, Trans isn't really real. You know, it's just some random choice that people make based on some trauma. This child came out of the womb like this. There was not Mm -hmm. a question. This is not a girl.
1: Yeah. And, And, you know, I I had to think about that too. I really did. I thought, Mm -hmm. what have I not done? Did I forget to love? Did I forget to spend time? Did I forget to tell? this penelope this child about all of the strong women of the world that i forgot to teach feminism mm. because three years old is around the time when my mom started teaching me about all the strong women you know i knew billy Jean king nina simone audrey lord um, dora welty tony Morrison. and i knew these women mm. and i thought maybe i've forgotten to talk about feminism to penelope maybe penelope is rejecting being seen as a, as a weak girl and wants to be seen as tough. So she, I thought, maybe she's picking toughness. Mm. And I, I said, okay, baby, however you feel is fine. And Penelope said, no, mama, I don't feel like a boy. I am a boy. So feeling versus being are two separate things. Right. And Penelope needed me to hear that. So when you look at and, and the, here's a little bit of the science, the brain for all of us, not just trans people, but for every human starts to develop identity at around three, then another time around preteen, and then another time around young adult. There are moments of, of identity development that the brain goes through, placing the person in relationship to the world. So at three is when it happens, Penelope was very verbal, Penelope was expressive, Penelope conveyed something to me at three that I did not, encourage in fact i tried to <laughs> i tried to make penelope into a girl i tried to keep mm. saying you are a beautiful girl you are a strong girl and the more i said that the sadder penelope became mm. so it wasn't overnight that i just said oh we're trans we're a fam, we're a trans family penel's a trans boy i still drill down in this idea that penelope was a great strong girl and mm. that just didn't work and Penelope said, I don't want tomorrow to come, Mama. Because tomorrow I'll look like you. That's when I said, I don't care what I thought, right? If Penelope's not going to make it, it's not worth it. And I changed the language. You just cha- you change the language. And, and I want to just go back to one thing you said about um, yeah. the, Penelope's grandfather who's from Ghana. And he wasn't, he was coming to live with us from Ghana. And he's very traditional in his ways, very educated and also very traditional. And he wasn't going to get Penelope as trans. He wasn't going to understand transgender reality. And so we came in through the back door and just asked him to use the pronoun he instead of the pronoun she. And for him, being educated, speaking multiple languages, he thought that was easy easy peasy. He said, no problem, I can use he. Because in his language of Twi, which they speak in Ghana, they don't even use gender pronouns. So that didn't have an, a connotation for him. And so I, I think about that, I thought about that a lot. Like, if people find it hard to understand how a person with a certain anatomy, a vagina, fallopian tubes, uterus, identifies and is a boy, forget the science for a minute. Just do what's life affirming. Switch right. the pronoun. And eventually your brain will start to switch, your heart will start to switch, your mouth will start to switch. It becomes it became so easy as I saw Penelope grow to say he. It means nothing to me to say he now, which Mm -hmm. is really just something to think about that we are malleable. Our brains are malleable and we can shift for people.
0: We can shift anything. Yeah, Lord, if I can stop smoking weed, anything can happen. (laughs) That was six years ago.
1: (laughs) Oh, gosh. It's so true. Oh, my God. It's so true. And I just, so to catch you all up to speed, Penelope is now uh, 12, just graduated valedictorian. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. And really is a, you know, a very planted, sturdy kid.
0: Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And looks like you. Oh, my God. (laughs) I love that. Got your little nose, got your (laughs) mouth. So beautiful, this kid beautiful boy. Okay, I want to know for my listener, where we can find you what is important to you right now and how we can support you in your work. Thank you for asking. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Well, so I'm I dwell on Instagram a lot. Um, It has been a way for us as a family for me as an activist to cross boundaries, Mm -hmm. cross cultures a lot of the women that I speak with don't have trans kids but through Instagram they can find relevance in my family and in my voice so Instagram is Jody Patterson Um, the book that I wrote is The Bold World it can be you know you go to Amazon you can download the audio book that's my voice speaking you can also pre-order my children's book which is a picture book called Born Ready The True Story of a Boy Named Penelope also on Amazon
0: Hmm.
1: and What's important to me, I I do a lot of work with the Human Rights Campaign. It's our largest LGBT organization. I'm the chair of the Board Foundation. And that is a place, if you want information, if you want to dig in, if you want to support some of the programs that really have saved our family, um, HRC, the Human Rights Campaign is a great place to land. There's also, and that's a national organization. There's this great, a smaller organization, powerful in its own way, Points of Pride and we give free chest binders to gender non-conforming people who want them we offer tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships and financial aid Uh, we touch many different countries and we support the trans community in very tangible ways helping them just to navigate in their daily lives you know like how do Mm -hmm. i get from point a to b from my house to my office to the grocery store without people gawking at me right. and hurting me, right? right. So right. Points of Pride um, and HRC are phenomenal. And then there's just one other organization that I love, it's called the Ackerman Institute, and that is for the family, right? So the Ackerman Institute Gender and Family Project helps the entire family navigate being um, different. And that, yeah, that's a hard point.
0: And you're on the board of that institute, yeah. 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 Jodi, you touched my heart when I walked into your house so many years ago, and I saw this insanely powerful, beautiful, confident, yet utterly fragile woman (laughs) who, again, made me just want to be black, first of all, but gave me a beacon, like a lighthouse, like, I want to be like that, all those years ago. It's still true.
1: (laughs) I, ironically, it's you say so that because I, I saw so much light in you, oh. so much light in you, and your first, um, my first yoga class with you that mm-hmm. Jeff Burroughs brought me to, after the class was over, I just cried. I was oh. in child's pose, just cried, and you said, that's exactly what you should do.
0: <laughs> oh, <God laughs> just goodness. let it out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I just want to
0: thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time with us. And um, I can't wait to see how it all unfolds and how much good and how many lives that you get to touch and help. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. Love you too, Angel. Talk soon. (laughs) Okay. Bye.